Hello, and welcome to the teaching ministry of Impact Family Church. For more information, including service times and directions, or to find out more about us, you can visit our website at www.impactfamilychurch.com. We trust you'll be blessed by today's message. Turn with me this morning to the fourth chapter of Acts, Acts chapter 4, and just uh, hold your place there. We'll get to this in just a moment. Our text, hallelujah. I want to talk to you today about why, or, or to ask and then answer the question, why do we celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. You know, when the Bible speaks of Jesus, very often in the Gospels in particular, and even in in other places in the Bible, it speaks of Jesus Christ of Nazareth because that identifies a particular man. You know, the name Jesus in some cultures is still a, a common name today. But we're not talking about just any old Jesus. We're talking about Jesus of Nazareth, the one who grew up in Nazareth in the household of a man named uh, Joseph and, and his wife Mary, the Jesus of Nazareth of the New Testament. Why do we celebrate like we do? You know, there are a lot of, of notable people in the world. Today, a lot of notable and distinguished people have lived and died. People of tremendous talent, people of tremendous accomplishment. Just this past week, for instance, we honored a man by the name of John Glenn, a phenomenal man, a man worthy of honor. Isn't that right? I mean, served you know faithfully as a you know as a fighter pilot, doing missions, you know. Uh, you could say a war hero uh, in, 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 in a manner of speaking. He became, you know, an astronaut. We were all, if those of us who are a little older, you know, uh, remember, you know, that he was the first man, you know, to, to uh, 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 orbit the earth. Uh, you know, just a phenomenal life's accomplishment and he could have stopped right there. But when he retired from that, then he went further into public service, became a senator, and, and it's just, he's lived a, a, a wonderful life, and, and it's right to honor such a person. And, you know, and that's just a good example because we've done that this week. But there are countless men and women down through the ages that have been remarkable people. I mean, truly outstanding. You could say great people, but nobody compares to Jesus of Nazareth. There's there's no celebration even that comes close to the celebration of Jesus of Nazareth. When you think about it, a man who was born in such obscurity, just born in the most lowly fashion, with none of the Uh, none of the things that would make it likely for him to be great. Basically, born as a nobody with very little potential in the natural to ever be known outside of his family and friends right there in Nazareth. 
And yet the world celebrates the birth of Jesus of Nazareth in a way that it doesn't celebrate any person that's ever lived. None of the people, there's some great people in American history. There's some great people in world history. There are a lot of great people in Bible history. There There are tremendous people in the Old Testament. Abraham, Noah, Moses, David, and you could go on and on and on and and mention all of the tremendous men and women of God who've done great things, but there's something about the birth of Jesus of Nazareth that, like they say, just flat takes the cake. There's just nothing like There's There's something that's sparkly. It in, the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ inspires. It inspires wonder. The birth of Jesus of Nazareth inspires awe, wonder, amazement, and hope that can't be explained by any natural circumstances. Now, I know that the unsaved world will always mess up anything it tries to get in on that's of God. Christmas is a celebration of the birth of Christ, but it's such a joyous occasion. It is an event that is so filled with wonder and amazement and inspiration that the reflection of that coming off of Christians just got over on the unsaved world, just kind of washed over them and, and, with, and without the, 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 the inner knowing of God or understanding of God or relationship, you know, they just had to respond the best way they could and we have all this gaudiness in the world. You know, all of the commercialization of, you know, Christmas and Santa Claus and Christmas trees and jingle bells and, and, and uh, winter wonderland. I think we were playing that this morning, weren't we? I don't know. But, you know, the world responds, but you can't blame them. I mean, they'd have to respond some way. The, 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 the celebration in the season is just too big for the church to contain. It's just too wonderful. It's just too glorious. And so the world does its best, you know, to respond and, you know, in some manner and, and they get it all messed up, but that's all right. We, we forgive them, praise the Lord. And it's even fun, you know, to get in on some of their silliness sometimes. There's nothing wrong with that. Praise the Lord. But, but why? Why do we celebrate the birth of Jesus, this Jesus of Nazareth? What's, what was so special about that birth? Well, you know the obvious answers. The first obvious answer is this Jesus of Nazareth is the son of God. Nobody else can make the claim that Jesus has and of the place he has. Now, by by spiritual rebirth, we know we've been born again and we've been born from above and we've been born of God. And so we are all sons of God. We understand that. But Jesus is the son of God in a, in a, in a unique way. He is actually God the son. We're, we're not God the son. We're just sons of God. 
by virtue of our being born into the family of God and and God's become our father. But God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost, that's who this Jesus is, God the Son. No ordinary birth. His coming, I talked about his coming last week. His coming was the single most important event in the history of the world. That's the truth. The coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, his birth, and then it includes everything in his life, his death, his resurrection, but his coming to this earth and all that involves is the single most important thing in the history of the earth. Nothing has ever affected humanity like the coming of Jesus. On the cross, this man who was born as a baby in in Bethlehem, grew up in Nazareth, on the cross he paid the debt of every man's sin. Every man. Every man who's ever lived. Every man who who ever will live. Whether he recognizes, whether that person recognizes it or accepts it or not, Jesus paid the debt of every man's sin and then God raised him from the dead. By personal faith in Jesus Christ alone, this Jesus of Nazareth, by personal faith in him and in no other, no other person can you say this about, that personal faith in Jesus of Nazareth will cause a person to be saved. Can't be said about anybody else. We're in uh, Acts chapter 4, and beginning in verse 8, it says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, you remember in the third chapter there was a crippled man that was healed. And uh, he said, If we're judged for a good deed done to a helpless man by what means he has been made well, Let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel, and I might say to all the people of the world, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That is a very powerful and a very consequential statement. That's a, in, in my day, we would say, that's heavy, man, when I was young. That's a heavy statement. There's salvation in no other. No other man, no other person, no other name, no other religion, no other anything. Among men under heaven, God has given one name and it's the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. It's because he is God. Now, either Jesus Christ is God or he isn't. Some people have the idea today that to be tolerant, you have to accept 
opposing views of the same subject. That's not tolerance, that's just ignorance. A number of months ago, I did a real short little series on that kind of covered a little bit of this concept. And, and uh, people today, they say, well, you know, to be tolerant, you have to, you have to accept other people's views and their opinions of religion and just, just acknowledge that everybody has a different way to God and everybody's right in their own way. Well, that's, that's not true. And in fact, if you look up the word tolerant or tolerance in the dictionary, it, it means the acceptance of other people's views and opinions, lifestyles, though you don't agree with them. It isn't ag- agreeing with people that makes you tolerant. It's accepting their right to believe what they want. You know, my neighbors, when I was a little boy growing up, I had neighbors on one side that uh, the, the man there that, that lived on uh, the left of us, he was an alcoholic and beat his wife. And uh, he was a truck driver, over-the-road truck driver, and he was out, you know, a lot. When he would come home, he'd go on a drinking binge and he'd beat his wife. And back then, in those days, in the early 60s, you know, we didn't have uh, air conditioning and our windows were open at night, you know, and we could hear uh, Miss Ewing next door yelling and screaming, begging her husband, you know, please don't beat me, please don't beat me. I mean, you know, we grew up with that on one side. The other side uh, were, was a family, and, and uh, I won't go into a lot of detail about, you know, where they went to church because they didn't go, but where they allegedly went to church because it's not really important, but they didn't know God. And, and uh, we didn't agree with them at all. But we went to their houses. Our children played together. You know, we didn't shun one another. Those kids came to our house. We went to their house. We went and did things together. Even our families, you know, went off and done, did things with the parents and such and such together. That's tolerance, being tolerant of people. Being tolerant of people doesn't mean that you have to accept other people's point of view. Amen. I mean, either Jesus is God or he isn't. All truth, to some degree, is exclusive. I mean, either Stephen Morgan and Rachel Morgan are married and they're husband and wife, or they're not. And, and, and believing that or not believing that doesn't make somebody tolerant. You're either right or wrong about the issue. It's either a fact or it isn't. So Jesus is either the son of God or he isn't. You know, he cannot be just a good man. A lot of people put Jesus up on a pedestal religiously and they say, oh, he was a great man. I don't know that he was God. Well, if he's not God, he wasn't a great man because he claimed to be God. I said he claimed to be God. Look at at John chapter 8 real quick. We've got some scriptures to go Uh, over real fast. Look at John chapter 8, verse 58. We won't take time to read all the context. Well, let's, let's do read verse 
55, yet you have not known him, but I know him. And if I say I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you, but I do know him and keep his word. This is Jesus talking. Your father Abraham, now Abraham lived 2000, approximately 2,000 years before Jesus. He was the father of the, of the Jewish nation. Your father Abraham, talking to the Jews, said, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. What in the world could he be talking about? How did Abraham see his day? Then the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to him, to them, most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And if you know anything about the Exodus how God delivered the children of Israel out of Exodus, God sent Moses to Pharaoh and, and he said, well, who, who will I say, you know, uh, sent me? He said, you tell Pharaoh, I am that I am sent you. That's the name of God from the Old Testament. All the Jews knew that. Jesus, Jesus told them, they said, you're not even 50 years old yet. He was, you know, in his 30s. He said, assuredly, I say to you before, Abraham was, I am. Look over at John 17. This wasn't just a a mistake or a slip on Jesus' part. Look at John chapter 17, verse number five. He's praying, Jesus is praying here for for the follower, his followers who would come after him. He said, and now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Speaking about before Abraham was, he said even before the world was. He claimed to exist before the world. Another place, we won't turn to it, but he said, I beheld Lucifer as lightning fall out of heaven. Jesus said, I saw that. I was around. In another place in John chapter 10, he said, I am the son of God. Well, you know, he, he, he's either a liar. He either was a liar or he was delusional. And neither one of those are characteristics of a good man. (laughs) You can't be a good man if you're a liar, particularly that big a liar. I mean, that's, 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 that's a big one. If that's a lie, that's a big lie. So he's not just a good man if he's not the son of God. Like somebody said, he's either a liar or a lunatic, lunatic, or he is the Lord of all. He's either who he said he was or he isn't. And if he isn't, then he wasn't a good man, but if he is, he is Lord of all. Hallelujah. Well, what evidence do we have in the scripture that Jesus is the Son of God? I mean, in what, what, what evidence do we have? We know that Jesus claimed to be God. He actually said about himself No man, this is in in, uh, John 14, he said, no man comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus was not playing around. He was not ambiguous. He was very forthright and very clear in claiming who he was. He said, "I'm, I'm, I'm the real deal. No man can come to the Father except through me. Well, what about some other? Let's just look at a couple of things, uh, three or four things before we go home. Scriptures, because I know it's a little later today getting started. 
Turn to Isaiah 7. Real, real, turn. Can you turn real fast? I don't know if that'll help you or not. Turn to Isaiah 7. Verse number 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. Pastor Anson mentioned that today. Here is a prophecy from the Old Testament that a virgin would conceive and bear a son. Who ever heard of such a thing? Never happened before. It's never happened since. It's an impossibility. He said, behold, here's a sign. A virgin will conceive and bear a son and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Well, we know the Christmas story, how the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary and she was, she was in we, the scriptures is betrothed, but it basically it, it sort of corresponds to our engagement process. The only thing when, when a couple was betrothed, 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 excuse me, betrothed in, uh, in biblical times, it was actually a legal contract. They were considered married. They had not consummated the marriage yet. They weren't living together as husband and wife, but it was a, it was a legal marriage contract. And, uh, and this was Mary and, and Joseph's situation. An angel appeared to her, Gabriel appeared to her, and said, you're going to have a child. And she said, well, how can that be? I've, I've, never, I've never been with a man before. I'm a virgin. He said, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. And that holy child that will be born of you will be called the Son of God. Now, the interesting thing about it is this prophecy was given 800 years before Christ's birth. Think about it. That's a long time. 800 years before Christ came on the scene, it was prophesied that a virgin would conceive and bear a son and they would call his name Emmanuel. It's pretty remarkable. Uh, let's see. Turn to Micah. Going over from Isaiah. Go on past Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joe, Amos. Come on, keep going. Jonah, Micah. Turn to Micah chapter 5. Micah chapter 5. Verse number 2. Micah, waiting on Steve to find it. Thank you, Steve. Micah 5, verse 2. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judea, yet out of you shall come forth of to me the one to be the ruler in Israel, whose going forth are from old, from everlasting. Now, on a, on a second note, this scripture again tells us of the, of the eternal uh, history of, of Christ. It says he was, his goings forth are from old, from everlasting, from eternity. So Jesus, according to the scripture, existed forever. But, he, but, but the main point that I wanted you to see is there's a prophecy given, and this prophecy was given 500 years before Christ was born. 500 years before Christ was born, a prophet, Micah, one of the minor prophets in the Old Testament, prophesied that, that 
about Bethlehem, that Bethlehem would be the birth of place of Christ. Now, how probable is that, that Jesus just happened to be born in Bethlehem? His parents, Mary and his, and his supposed father, Joseph, they were from Nazareth. Now, what woman would plan in the last stages of her pregnancy, just days before she's going to give birth, what woman would plan to suddenly, at that late stage of pregnancy, get on a donkey and ride from one city to another, from Nazareth to Bethlehem? Not going to happen. That could, that just not something that would you, no way is, does that happen. But there was a circumstance that suddenly came up that the, the uh, emperor issued this decree that all people had to be taxed. They had to go back to the, to, the, to the city of their lineage, which was Bethlehem, and so they had to do it. 500 years before Christ, this obscure prophecy came forth. One of the most amazing prophecies in the entire Bible, in my, in my opinion, concerning Christ is found in Daniel chapter 9. Go back just a little ways to the left. Find Daniel chapter 9. This is the famous prophecy of the 70 weeks that were determined for the nation of Israel from the time uh, that a certain event would take place. The Lord appeared to Daniel, the prophet. Daniel was a young man. By this time, he was a little older. As a young man, he was one of the exiled uh, uh, young people that had left and had been taken captive when Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians. He was taken into Babylonian captivity through a series of, of miraculous interventions in his life. He came up in, in, in a place of prominence uh, under the, the uh, king of Cyrus and so forth and, and uh, Nebuchadnezzar and, and all of those uh, kings. And the Lord appeared to him and gave him a, a, a vision and a prophecy concerning the future of the nation of Israel, which at this time was disbanded. They had been, they'd been taken, uh, sold into slavery and dispersed, you know, into different nations. Verse 24 says, Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. So this prophecy of 70 weeks reaches all the way through the, uh, the, the fulfillment of Israel's history on the earth. Now, when the Bible speaks of weeks, if, if, you, if you know your Old Testament, I'm trying to save time here a little bit. If you know your Old Testament, when, when Jacob was... Uh, uh, working for uh, Rachel, his wife, you know, and and uh, he went to Laban, you know, and, and worked. He said, you'll need to work for her, work for me for her one week. Well, that one week was seven years. He worked those seven years, and then Laban tricked him and said, now you have to work another seven years. And that was another week. So the Bible, there's, there's illustrations and examples all through the Old Testament where a week doesn't refer to seven 24-hour days, but a week refers to a seven-year period, one week. And that's the kind of weeks it's talking about here. Verse number 25 says, Know therefore and understand 
that from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, Jerusalem was in ruins. The, the, the Babylonians had come in and completely destroyed the city, burned everything to the ground. Years and years had gone by. D- several decades had gone by since then. The streets were overgrown with, with uh, vegetation, trees, and bushes. It was just a wasteland at the time that Daniel received this prophecy. And, and the Lord said to him, or the angel did, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks, that would be 49 years, and 62 weeks, which would be 434 years. And you you total those together, that's 69 weeks or 483 years. He said, the street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. That was, that 49 years was, was the time it would take to rebuild the streets and the walls to rebuild Jerusalem. Okay, but you take those, that, that 49 year period and the 434 years, put them together, 483 years. He said, to, to, from, from the going forth of the command to restore and, and build Jerusalem until Messiah the prince, there shall be, in essence, 69 weeks, 483 years. Well, the thing about it is, this time that of the commandment that went forth to rebuild Jerusalem, that date can be pinpointed in time. If you go back over to Nehemiah, turn, turn uh, back to the books of history, go back to Nehemiah, go to Job, take a left. Nehemiah, go to the second chapter of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1, it says, It came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King... You ready for this? Artaxerxes. I challenge anybody else to get that pronunciation from that. But I I looked it up and I had to listen to it. You know, you have those uh, definitions that you can click on, they'll play it for you. It's pronounced... pronounced Artaxerxes, Artaxerxes, King Artaxerxes came to pass in the month of Nisan in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, it's easier for you to say, when wine was before him that I took the wine, gave it to the king. Now I had never been sad in the king's presence before. And the king said to me, what is, why is your face sad? Uh, are you sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. So I became dreadfully afraid. And the king said, uh, anyway, the king asked him, what's going on? And he said, well, I'm sad because my nation is lying in ruins. Nehemiah was one of those who had been, who had been taken into captivity. And, and uh, he said, how can I be happy when my homeland and the, and, my, and the city of Jerusalem is overgrown with weeds and trees? So if you read on down here, King uh, Artaxerxes authorized... It says here, in the month of Nisan, Nisan, uh, in the 20th year of, of his reign. Well, this king reigned from 465 B.C. to 425 B.C. And, or 460, yeah, 65 to 25. So the 20th year would be 444 B.C. And the month of, of uh, uh, Nisan 
Nisan, if it was the first day of the month, that would have been March the 14th. It's pretty precise. March the 14th, 444 B.C. The command was given to rebuild Jerusalem. So we have a date. We don't know exactly that it was the first, but usually when it mentions the, in the Bible, when it mentions a particular month in the Jewish calendar, if it's not the first day, it tells you the day. When it doesn't tell you the day, that usually infers it's the first day. So that would be March the 14th, 440, uh, 445 B.C. Daniel received a prophecy from an angel that 483 years later, Messiah would be presented to Israel. Well, now, the, the, the years, if you try to figure it out in your head, in, in prophetic years in the Bible, a year was 360 days, not 364 days. 360 days. We have 365, 365 days, and then every now and then we throw in an extra day to correct the calendar. Well, in the, in the Bible, uh, a year was 360 days, and every now and then they'd throw in a month. That's how they corrected the calendar. And if you do that, if you, if you take 483 prophetic years of 360-day uh, years, if you do that and then throw in the, the months that would have been thrown in over that period of time, you know what you come down to? You come down to April 6th, A.D. 32, which happens to be Palm Sunday, the Sunday before Jesus was raised from the dead. And that was the Sunday. In Jesus' ministry, he continually proved that he was the Messiah to those who followed him. But you remember, every time they would try to take him by force and make him Messiah, he, he would get away. And he, he, wouldn't, he would not public, publicly declare himself to be their Messiah. But on Palm Sunday, it's called his triumphal entry. This is the Sunday that Jesus rode in to Jerusalem. By the way, it was prophesied that he would rise, ride in on, the, on the, a colt, on the back of a colt. And the back, we won't take time because I'm, I'm running out of time. But on that Palm Sunday, he made his, his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. It was August the 6th, A.D., 32, exactly 483 years after the commandment was given to rebuild Jerusalem. Jesus rode into Jerusalem and the people cut down branches off their trees, palm branches and other trees and they took their clothes and they laid it in the streets and they said, Hosanna to the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They proclaimed his and Jesus didn't stop them. The Pharisees came to him and said, do you hear what these people are saying about you? And Jesus said, if they don't say it, the rocks will cry out. That's, that's, to me, that is the most amazing prophecy in the Bible. There are over 300 prophecies fulfilled directly by Jesus Christ. Old Testament prophecies. Now, bef bef before you let that slip by, you know, there, there, some of the 300 prophecies are more obscure. You, you would have to really be a very knowledgeable 
person probably with special education, you know, in the Old Testament scriptures from some of these 300 prophecies to actually understand that the prophecy and the context and the place in which it was given, who it applied to of those 300. There's 300 of them. But of the eight more obvious prophecies, I've already mentioned a couple of them. Of the eight more obvious, uh, you just can't even ignore it, prophecies. The likelihood that one person would fulfill eight prophecies given that many years before is a probability of one in 10 to the 17th power. That's a one with 17 zeros. Dan, what is that? Come on now. Come on now. There's billion. Something beyond, way out beyond trillion. That's the likelihood that any one person from the beginning of time, even up until today, there's 8 billion people on the planet, or nearly. The likelihood that any one person would fulfill all eight of these prophecies is one in 10 to the 17th power. Now, if you expect, if, if you take silver dollars, you know how big a, we don't see them anymore, but silver, I read this a few years ago, silver, silver dollars, if you took silver dollars, Texas is a big place, great, biggest landmass in the, in the country. If you took silver dollars and, and lined the entire state of Texas with silver dollars, just one up against another, the entire state of Texas, it would take silver dollars stacked up two and a half feet high over all the state of Texas then you take a person and blind, and you, and you take one of those silver dollars and mark it and then take all the silver dollars and just thoroughly mix them up and lay them all out and take one person, blindfold him and tell him, now you go in there and pick out one silver dollar, the one with the mark. That's how likely it is that one person could have fulfilled these prophecies. That's eight prophecies. There are 48 prophecies that are a little easier to see that most people, if, you are, if you're a, a, a student of Bible, doesn't mean you went to Bible college, just if you're a student of Bible, 48 prophecies. The likelihood of any one person in history fulfilling 48 specific prophecies like Messiah would be rejected. He was to be betrayed by one of his close followers and friends, Psalm uh, 41. He was to be sold for 30 pieces of silver, Zechariah 11, 12. He would be silent before his accusers, Isaiah 53, uh, uh, 7. He was to be smitten and spit upon. Uh, he would bring healing to the people. He would be mocked and ta- uh, uh, taunted. He would be crucified with sinners and pray for his enemies. His hands and feet would be pierced. He would be given gall and vinegar. His side would be pierced. They would cast lots for his garments. He was to be buried with the rich and so forth. 48 of the easy ones to pick out, the likelihood that any one person would fulfill those specific prophecies in one life, one chance in 10 to the 157th power. Now you're just, now you're just absurd. You can't even think about it. But there were 300 prophecies. This man came on the scene. I mean, some ignorant person, I actually read this one time. Somebody said, well, Jesus knew a lot of these prophecies and he arranged some things to happen when they did. He arranged his birth. 
That's pretty remarkable. In fact, his parents were so smart. How many of you young people, you young married couples, you're planning a child, how many of you say, okay, I want my child to be born on a certain date, maybe my mother's birthday. So we're going to get pregnant on a certain... How many of you could think you could pull that off? Not very likely. Let alone calculate the day when he would come into Jerusalem riding on a donkey's colt. Who could plan such a thing? It just can't be done. The fact of the matter is only one person, only one person could possibly fulfill all these prophecies and he would have to be God. There's no other explanation. He'd have to be God. Nobody else could pull it off. I mean, 300 prophecies, it'd be one to the 10, you know, zillions of powers. I mean, you just, it just can't happen. It can't happen. But it happened. It happened. He fulfilled all these prophecies. But you know what? When you're, when you're talking to people, you know what the greatest proof is of all? That Jesus is the Son of God. The greatest proof of all is what happened inside you. It's what happened inside you. That's the greatest proof. I See, I know, I know what Jesus did in me. That no other person, no other religion, no other cause, no other anything could produce in me what Jesus produced in me. The Apostle Paul, if you think about it, even though he wrote the New Testament, the theology of the New Testament and the epistles, even though he was given such a a profound depth of knowledge and understanding of the spiritual realm, throughout his life, from the beginning until he stood before King Agrippa, he always told the story of his conversion. He always gave his testimony. He always gave his, never discount your testimony. So, well, I didn't see a blinding light from heaven. I didn't hear voices like, like Paul did. doesn't matter. You have a testimony. You know what happened in you, and nobody can refute that. Now, they may not believe it. King Agrippa said, you're mad. You're crazy. But Paul understood the power of testimony. He testified, this is what happened to me. There was a day I was on the road to Damascus and I saw from heaven a light and I, and I was blinded and I fell on my knees and I heard a voice from heaven say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I said, who are you? And he said, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. The power of, of your testimony is the greatest evidence. Tell it, tell it, tell it. Tell it. The apostle Paul knew all that he knew, but he kept giving his testimony It's because he understood it's the most powerful witness out there. Tell it. Just tell Pete. Say, well, it's not great. It's, it tell you what, your testimony will, 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 will strike a chord in somebody's heart, a lot of people's heart. For me, you know, I was you know, saved as a child. Don't remember much about that really. But as a backslidden man, 20 years old, small-time drug dealer in, in, in uh, Brooksville, Florida, working down there. The power and presence of God came into my little motel room. 
little mom and pop motel, strip motel, came into my room, changed my life. It was a revelation of Jesus Christ. Every one of us have a testimony. Every one of us have a testimony. Glory to God. Thank God he came. Thank God he is who he said he is. There are other prophecies I didn't read. There are prophecies about his coming again. What's the likelihood given that Jesus has fulfilled all these that he won't fulfill that one? No likelihood. He's coming back. At Impact Family Church, it is our desire to see you blessed through the power of the Word of God. We have been helping people to change their world for over 25 years through our dynamic ministries and teaching. If you are going to be in the North Central Florida area and are interested in attending our services or just want more information about us, you can visit us online at www.impactfamilychurch.com.